Who shall tell what may be the effect of writing, if it happens to have been cut in stone, though it lie face downmost for ages on a forsaken beach, or rest quietly under the drums and tramplings of many conquests? It may end by letting us into the secret of usurpations and other scandals gossiped about long empires ago, this world being apparently a huge whispering galley. Such conditions are often minutely represented in our petty lifetimes, as the stone which has been kicked by generations of clowns may come by curious little links of effect under the eyes of a scholar through whose labors it may at last fix the date of invasions and unlock religions, so a bit of ink and paper, which has long been an innocent wrapping or stopgap, may at last be laid open under the one pair of eyes which have knowledge enough to turn it into the opening of a catastrophe. To Uriel, watching the progress of planetary history from the sun, the one result would be just as much of a coincidence as the other. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to the Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Pietsche. And I'm Soren Rearguard. We're back with our second episode on George Eliot's Middle March. We're going to dive in in just a minute, but a little bit of housekeeping first. First, as always, you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Reader's Karamazov. We are on Twitter at The Readers K. You can find our podcast at thereaderskaramazov.podbean.com. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do uh, rate and review us. That always helps. And uh, you can email us, us at thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com. And um, we, do, we do have a, an actual reader comment from Twitter um, that I just wanted to pass along really briefly. To you all, friend of the pod, Jack, uh, said on Twitter he really liked Carl's comment last time where Carl compared Middle March to Paul Thomas Anderson's film Magnolia. His comment, well, he had two, two comments. One was, we should do a Magnolia pod, which I agree with. Maybe we can do that at some point. And then his other, his other comment was what the, the book has been bringing to his mind as he's been reading and following along with us is actually uh, Twin Peaks in this sort of dynamics of a small town where everybody I thought this was a good comment that he made everybody is outwardly pretty quirky but then you actually kind of dig underneath the surface and you kind of learn more about what their actual deal is so they're not just just caricatures even though on the surface maybe they seem like caricatures there's actually some reality underneath I thought that was a good observation Ooh, I like that from Jack so shout out to Jack Thank shout out to Jack way to go but Always feel free to comment to us on social media or, or via email. We love getting reader feedback on these episodes. So we're back with Middlemarch Part 2, Books 3 and 4, Book 3 called Waiting for Death, Book 4, Three Love Problems. It's like a magnetic fields album or something. 
as always, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a plot overview here, and then we're going to just dig into some of the kind of exciting ideas that are going on. As promised, this time we're going to move away from Dorothea and Casaban and focus on some of the other characters. We are going to spend a little bit of time with Dorothea and Casaban as well, uh, but we're going to focus on some of the other you know, dozens of characters that are in this book. But in these two sections, you get kind of a complicated set of stories. The first book is largely given over to Fred Vinci and his problems. So Fred is the son of the mayor of Middlemarch. His sister, Rosamund Vinci, becomes engaged over the course of this section to Lydgate the physician, one of our other two main characters, along with Dorothea. But Fred, at the beginning of Waiting for Death, is literally waiting for the death of Peter Featherstone, who's sort of his benefactor. He's um, a quasi sort of uncle. And everybody expects that Featherstone is going to leave his massive amounts of money to Fred because Fred's kind of his favorite guy in the world. Elliot very, very comically sort of follows the last days of Featherstone as his family comes to suck up to him and Fred's there trying to suck up to him. In the end, though, there's this big shock to everybody in that Featherstone doesn't leave anything to basically to anybody except for this new character in town, Joshua Rigg Featherstone, who turns out is Featherstone's natural-born son, or as we might say, his bastard. So all this stuff is suddenly given over to him instead of to Fred, and Fred is left in turmoil because he's in debt. Um, the, his friends, the Garths, have already taken over his debt, and he's not been able to pay them back. So he's kind of thrown uh, into the world again and, and discovering he needs to actually work for his living, things like that. In the second section, we're following these three sets of relationships. One, of course, is Dorothea and Casaban. We're, we're seeing the strains that are emerging in their marriage, particularly over the person of Will Ladislaw. We talked a little bit about him last time, who is the cousin of Casaban. He's dependent on him for money, at least until partway through this book. And Casaban does not like him at all. He thinks he's um, not serious, flighty, but he also starts to suspect that Will is having an undue influence on Dorothea, playing on her pity, and maybe working to undermine his own, Casaban's own position in Dorothea's eyes. So he's not happy about that. So that's one love problem. The other love problem is the, the courtship between Rosamond and Lydgate. Lydgate, even though he, he eventually decides, okay, I guess you know, I'm probably going to marry this girl. Everything starts to happen much more quickly than he's anticipating. He thinks, I'm not going to get married for a long time, so I can devote myself to science. Instead, by the end of this time, he's just about to get married. Things have rushed along quite quickly. And finally, the third love problem is uh, this girl, Mary Garth, who is the sort of the maid for Featherstone. She's the daughter of Caleb Garth, who's a local builder. And she's sort of the object of affection for Fred Vinci. However, also possibly the object of affection for uh, Reverend Fairbrother, who we met last time. So there's all these different swirls of affections going on, lots of young love, but also the complication and development of love over the course of a marriage. It's a lot of, uh, of balls in the air that we're sort of juggling here, uh, but th there's a lot of different directions to go with this, a lot of different things we can tackle um, in terms of what Elliot is doing to develop her world here, her writing and the ideas that she really wants to explore. So I'm going to throw it over to you, to, to you and, and see what you all want to talk about. I mean, I'd be interested first in just jumping into that, that excellent summary that you've provided and talking about the shape of the novel just a little bit more, something we touched on a lot in the first episode. But if we're thinking about this as a book that's sort of, like where it sort of straddles 
books rather than having cliffhangers and it's sort of uh, montage-esque in that way. It's also important that as you're describing these three love problems, it's a book about marriages that are occurring in the novel and are in progress and are coming and are mirroring each other and it's not a book where we're driving toward the end goal of a marriage like in a comedy or in a, a number of Victorian novels right with where the marriage plot resolves and that's the end of the novel or in a Dickens novel where things resolve and then hey we have to have a marriage at the end it's happy uh, what's interesting about the two of the marriages you were talking about in book three is that they sort of mirror each other too that with Kazaban the problem that he's he has now is that he's waited too long really to get married right he's put his career and his his intellectual work first for so long that now that he has a partner almost 30 years his junior it's not working out very well Lidgett meanwhile has a lot of ambitions in his career that he's delaying marriage for and is suddenly finding himself impelled to get married in a way that he's enjoying uh, but which is disrupting his plans and it's interesting that the novel then is going to continue exploring those mess alliances as they're called and alliances and, and watching them unfold rather than concluding with them can i just draw our attention to one incredible sequence where you're thinking about this idea of montage here or something like that the, the cutting of the camera we're starting out we're getting this wonderful description of featherston's funeral and then all of a sudden we like rapid it's almost like we rapidly zoom out and we discover that we're actually at Loic with Casaban and Dorothea, who aren't going to the funeral. They're just watching everybody else go to the funeral. They're just observing. And it's a wonderful way of cutting from one aspect to the other. And then we eventually we go back to the will and the proceedings of the will with Featherston. But it's, an, it's such an interesting move away to suddenly move us to these other characters who aren't directly related to the plot that's going on over here. It's a movement via narrative, via a sort of a visual movement of the narrator herself. I think it's an incredible moment. I just wanted to, to spot that. I mean, I think you're, that's something that Elliot does really well in this book is to shift from character to character in a way that's, you, you can read it without thinking about it, right? It's not something that you're suddenly like, oh, that was a really flashy move that I was sort of surprised by. It's very natural. And then there are moments that are a little more deliberately jarring. She's beginning, for instance, at one moment to talk about Dorothea whose relationship with Kazabon we've been dwelling on for several pages. Chapter begins anew. She says, so Dorothea, blah, blah, pause mid-sentence, hard dash. But why always Dorothea? And then it goes into Kazabon's consciousness and, and asks, like, what about this character who we've been sort of watched being derided for several chapters? Doesn't he have something too? And he does, and she gets into that. It's a nice, it's a nice move as well, and she's, I guess what I'm saying is she does it in a few different ways that are, that are pretty satisfying. There's this really interesting passage, and I wonder what y'all make of it. And to me, it gets to, like, what is the nature of this cutting, blending, this web work of, you know, narratives? Is Eliot posing as a question for us what the weight of these things are as we get in the, the beginning of book four? Such men as this are feathers, chips, and straws, carry no weight, no force. But levity is casual, too, and makes the sum of weight... So there's a questioning as to what is or is not worth weighing. And, you know, what is the worth or weight of these threads that we're connecting? We are all of us imaginative in some form or other, for images are the brood of desire. And poor old Featherstone, who laughed much at the way in which others cajoled themselves, did not escape the fellowship of illusion. 
In writing the program for his burial, he certainly did not make clear to himself that his pleasure in the little drama of which it formed a part was confined to anticipation. In chuckling over the vexations he could inflict by the rigid clutch of his dead hand, he inevitably mingled his consciousness with that livid, stagnant presence, and so far as he was preoccupied with the future life, it was with one of gratification inside his coffin. Thus old Featherstone was imaginative after his fashion. I wonder what y'all make of that. I think there's a nice, like, because we're looking at these different kinds of middles, these different kinds of middling people, and a certainly like a, a kind of middle part of the book and a middle character who's dead, looking at having weighed his life well in a certain sense, but only through this fellowship of illusion. What do you make of um, what Elliot's doing with this passage and this this character's death, which centers a lot of the action in some ways for this part just seemed like a weighty passage to me this is one of my favorite passages i had this marked as well carl so uh, i'm really glad you brought us here it strikes me that you're talking about middles and i love that featherston is somebody who is sort of stuck in this middle here because his imagination is such that he cannot go beyond to literally the afterlife. He cannot think about what his sort of eternal state is going to be. He can only think about, like, he's planning everything um, such that he's thinking, oh, this is going to be so great. My relatives are going to be so pissed off at everything I'm doing. And he gets all this anticipation in the immediate, but he's not thinking about the long term. And he has that wonderful moment right before he dies where you almost seem to sense that he has this instant, almost like an epiphany where he suddenly realizes oh, shoot, I've set this up. So he, he wrote two wills, and the, the newer will is going to screw Fred over. And he realizes, oh, I don't want to actually do this. I'm having this remorse, but it's too late to fix it. And because he didn't have the foresight to try to do it beforehand, he's left with not being able to fix what he's doing. And so he's he's got that middling personality. He's always about the sort of what's immediately in front of him and can't look beyond. And I love that Elliot still sort of redeems him as a character by Mm -hmm. saying like he has this share of imagination he still has an imagination because imagination is desire it's a malformed imagination maybe it's imperfect especially maybe compared to the novelist's imagination who can see much farther than anybody else but it's not useless it still has some use for him and, and did bring him some pleasure and some good maybe in his life well, thinking of the book just a little bit after the events taking place, you know, it seems to me like uh, the book invites us to make that comparison with Elliot, the writer, putting these pieces together for us. I like the irony of that passage, too, in that Soren was pointing out that there's that great passage where he's trying to convince Mary to burn the will, and he's dumping the money out. Take the money to, to Mary, right? Take the money. And she won't do it because she's very morally upright and doesn't want to involve herself because she knows that getting involved in any way is entangling herself in this business of someone's last will and then making herself culpable in some way, especially if she benefits from it. But I love the irony in that passage that Carl read talking about the rigid clutch of his dead hand on this on this group of captive listeners. But it's ironized because that clutch, that second will, is something that he regretted, right? He didn't want to do it, but his will has been set in motion in his last testament and is having these unintended effects. And Soren points out, too, that this long-term, it's maybe a delicious 
potential thing that he's doing to like that he can enjoy imaginatively, but it also has these long-term consequences that he's maybe not looking toward. There's a really nice parallel to that in uh, Dorothea's plot when she has the miniature of Aunt Julia related to Kazaban, who is Will Ladislaw's grandmother, who herself married a Polish, like poor Polish person, right? Musician or something. And they disinherited her because of that. And then later she's looking at that miniature again and thinking about um, Will being and his side of the family having no money. And that's why he depends on Kazaban and asking like, was inheritance a question of liking or of responsibility? All the energy of Dorothea's nature went on the side of responsibility. The fulfillment of claims found on our own deeds, such as marriage and parentage, that these things aren't just about like the romance of the moment or the delicious uh, <laughs> comeuppance or something like that, but that they're going to have these generational consequences that are the undercurrent of the novel and that are going to return later in the novel to, to ill effect. I just want to point out that the next, the very next um, book, book five that we'll get to next time, is called The Dead Hand. <laughs> and so there's this wonderful weaving. It's almost like a little joke that she's planting there for us to kind of pick up on later. But I love what you're saying here, Friedrich, about the reach that even these dead people have into the future. Because Featherstone, his sort of desire for immediate gratification has so many rippling effects on the people around him. We, we don't fully know what those are yet, but we know at least that Fred Vinci's life has been utterly changed by the fact that he's not getting this money. Now he has to go find some way to work and earn money. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily for the worse, but there's a change happening. And even Dorothea's pity and, and sense of, you know, what is justice in this situation of the wills is going to go on to affect her future relationship with Kasaban, certainly, because she brings it up with him and he just does he just goes nuts. He does not like this at all. He just shuts off from her over this question of, of what's merited to Will and that side of the family. So, yeah, that's a, it's a fascinating way in which people extend beyond the course of their own lives and not in any, like, not in any religious or spiritual sense, but in the sense just of property and what happens to the stuff you you have during your life. Where, where does it go? That's a really interesting way of thinking about it that I hadn't thought of. I always think of Elliot someone so interested in history that I think of like the dead hand as something gripping us from the past, right? And you have to deal with your past, which is so Magnolia, right? If we're talking about the movie, that the, the past ain't through with you or whatever. But I like that you're saying it's also a way of thinking about, to summarize what you said and get to Carl's question about what she's doing as a writer and a thinker, that it's a way of thinking about people extended beyond their bodies or beyond their their wills in the moment and existing beyond death in some way because their wills continue to take effect and have effect. That's It's really interesting to me. Well, the, the dual nature of, or I guess there's three senses in which there's a dead hand. As you're both saying, I don't think the religious is being drummed up, but... Mm-hmm. The, the historical sense, but also it's a legal concept too, right? Dead hand, Mortmain. You tell I us. I believe you. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. Like, um, it's English law. I mean, I'm not the expert on like, you know, 19th century English law here or anything. Like having control over private property after one's death, like per, like legal perpetuity of a will or something is connected to Mortmain or common law. That's interesting. Okay, that's an interesting point then, Carl, because I'd wondered about, we'll maybe talk about this more next time, probably, but 
I had wondered about like why are some of these people so able to control like what happens with their stuff that after the death like putting on all these stipulations into wills and things like that that's sort of what you're getting at is the more main is that ability to regulate um, through your will like set specific conditions for how your property is apportioned and things like that like if then conditions yeah. and i think it goes i think it comes back to some like saying or whatever about like your hand being on the will or the property in perpetuity or something so that like material materiality material culture of the events of a funeral and its lasting effects that are emotional and fleeting but also material and lasting she draws she draws all the threads she puts it all in those multiple valences all the time and that's what makes it kind of an exciting novel friedrich do you you want to give us any additional context on um wills in in sort of victorian society and literature is there anything that else that we need to know only that uh generically as far as like just popular novels they're really a common device right and like almost every dickens novel you'll read there's a will that's being contested or uncovered at some point that's going to bestow great wealth upon a character or that's going to deprive someone of something they thought they were going to get i think they're played with a lot and i think it's because the idea of an inheritance is so flexible. We can be talking about the inheritance of values and like nations or whatever, as well as wealth and inheritance of like values from other people. But then like the idea of a will also is, is very flexible in this novel as well. And I think Elliot likes to play with that. It's something that's a common device, but that you can linguistically play with a will that we all have personally, a last will and testament. And then even Will Ladislaw is a person who's coming in and... Like I like the I think there's at least a at least a double pun in Will's name because right? you got Will obviously and then Lattice Law, Law yeah is like this um, <laughs> there we go you know this so so there's that element of it there for sure mm-hmm. yeah I like that a lot yeah Mort Main the perpetual inalienable ownership of real estate by a corporation or legal institution and this is, gets back to like before you know corporate legal personhood in the 20th century there's yeah. uh, church legal personhood who's Mort Main has the ability to keep law in perpetuity without passage by inheritance um, mm-hmm. because, you know, the religious order doesn't die. So there's that, like, Mitt Romney, the church is people, my friend, um, kind of 19th century statement going on for us. If I can if I can flip us back to a previous episode, um, actually our conversation, Friedrich and I's conversation about Anthony Trollope's The Warden centers... Uh, a, a good bit on a will that has been set up in perpetuity for the benefit of these old men in the neighborhood, but also for the church for centuries. So there's, there's for centuries, yeah. And so there's that there's that sense of lastingness and kind of moving things that connect us. You know what you were talking about before, we were connecting us back to history, but then also forward into what is our local society going to look like, and how is that going to be shaped by the things that have come before us. And to think even just back to our last episode when they were in Rome, we were talking about that visible history of Rome and how confused it is as well as how it represents those changes over time. And Elliot brings us then to the local to look at how that's happening now in different ways. And these wills are perfect examples of that. I also think that setting it in 1829 when she does, it's important to focus on a will or an inheritance because it's a novel about people with money uh, and then they are encountering people without money and by 1872 when she's writing this after the 1867 expansion of the franchise we're looking at an English society that has begun to encounter class difference in a much more I mean Marx has uh, has begun to write by this point right and has 
been living in London. And so it's a time of really great social change. And I think her exploration of this world is influenced on a philosophical level by like how we think about people around us and other people and how we see them economically as well as emotionally. Can we go ahead and then and talk a little bit about Mr. Brooke? Because he is, is a sort of fascinating character to me in this section because he's not really in the plot at all, but then we get this weird kind of digression at the end of Three Love Problems about what Mr. Brooke is doing with his property. He's getting ready to, he's trying to run for parliament basically, and he's running as a progressive. He's running on these progressive political platforms, the reform. But then as everybody's sort of pointing out and attacking him for, he's running on these things and then his own property is just run down. Mm -hmm. He had fired Caleb Garth 12 years before and, and tried to take control of the property himself and like all of his tenants' buildings are falling apart. And there's all this, you know, it's just his tenants, so the people who farm for him and um, give him some of the proceeds of their farming, that their houses are just all in awful condition. He's not doing his responsibility as a landlord. And he has this really wonderful interaction with this one of his tenants, Dagley. He catches Dagley's son poaching, basically. And he says, he comes to him, he's very condescending. He says, oh, I'm not going to punish your son, but maybe you can talk, reprimand him. And Dagley's like, what the heck, dude? You're like, you don't do anything for us. You suck. You're a terrible landlord. And he's like struck by by this he's like never considered that his tenants might hate him and it and it's tied to this idea it's, it's sort of this interesting you know going back to what you were just saying friedrich this idea of physical transformation tied to social transformation somehow and brooks problem is that his like physical properties are deteriorating all around him he can't keep up mm -hmm. and so to what extent is he actually a progressive if he can't take care of the problems in his own backyard. And that's a, a question I think that Elliot is pretty concerned with. Uh, I love that you brought us to that moment too, because it's like he's forced to confront his tenants and they want to confront him. Right. And he thinks like by being fatherly, I'm not going to punish your child, like with the rod, I'm just going to uh, lecture him. Like he's doing them a, a favor and Dagley who's drunk enough to work up the courage, talks back to him in his thick accent. It's great not to get too bookish, as we're reading our book, but it's, I think it's a nice, like Raymond Williams points this out in his writing on the novel. It's a nice instance of the landed gentry being forced to like confront people that they otherwise might not even think about, even though it's like his tenant because of that hierarchical relationship. In his writing on Austin, uh, Raymond Williams writes about the knowable communities of Austin's world outside Pemberley or something. Are we seeing the people who work the land? Not really. Are we seeing the people who, who bring food to the house and cook it. And no, of course not. But that Elliot is interested in starting to see those people. And I think that connects, you know, Soren to what you were saying about like the physical reality of this world and how they have to interact with it. And there's a, there's a certain interesting, I, I think, pragmatism to the people who are there working. And Elliot, I think in part is drawing our attention to the fact that, well, so Sir James Chetham is sort of more of a, maybe more of a Tory. He's more traditionalist. And, Mr. Brooke is more progressive, more of a Whig, but actually, like, they're much more similar to each other than they are to Dagley, right? Oh, yeah. um, and, and, and Dagley, there's this really f funny line she has talking about Dagley going and getting drunk at, at the inn, and it says, he had also taken too much in the shape of muddy political talk, a stimulant dangerously disturbing to his farming conservatism which consisted in holding that whatever is, is bad. <laughs> Any change is likely to be worse. 
And so there's that wonderful sense of like a pragmatism on Dagley's part, which says like, my life is going to be terrible no matter what. Your highfalutin ideas, Brooke, don't help me at all. I'm still the underclass. I'm still screwed here. You know, I, and I think she's affectionate to, to all of her characters, and she's affectionate to Brooke, certainly, but she also is sort of pointing out it's one thing to have these progressive ideas about society and say, okay, I want to reform things, and quite another to actually bring about changes that are going to be doing something materially for the people who are underneath your authority. And, and Dagley, I think, recognizes that and exposes that to us a good bit. Yeah, we get the hint that there's a class ideology in Brooke, Brookism, and Dorothea kind of gets that too, right? Oh, there's a section where she says, Dorothea had little vanity, but she had the ardent woman's need to rule beneficently by making the joy of another soul. And that applies to Mr. Brooke too, though it's like, maybe not rule beneficially, but like placate happily or like lazily there's something in this notion of like liberal reform that she's also undercutting too which is the look and the feel of the benefit as directed from the peasant towards the reformer is what matters more than the material gain of the peasant of a dagley or the material you know situation or needs and, and ultimately here, it's Caleb Garth who's going to come in and actually make the changes, right? There's this, there's a kind of wonderful irony. So Caleb Garth gets hired by Sir James to kind of come and be the, his property manager. And he also sort of forces Brooke in, he like twists Brooke's arm so that Brooke will also hire Caleb Garth, who he's fired 12 years before, to come back and be his property manager as well. Garth, who's a very quiet man, doesn't say much. He actually has a little bit of a speech about this, which is really nice from when he finds out he's going to be given the chance to manage these properties again. And this is what he says. He says, it's a fine thing to come to a man when he's seen into the nature of business, to have the chance of getting a bit of the country into good fettle, as they say, and putting men into the right way with their farming and getting a bit of good contriving and solid building done that those who are living and those who come after will be the better for. I'd sooner have it than a fortune. I hold it the most honorable work that is. So Garth's giving us this sort of, I don't know, like a localist option or something like that. Like the what matters is the material well-being of the people around you and that you're sort of doing good craftsmanship and good work and enabling them to then benefit from that and do their, their own good work, doing something that will last for future generations. It's coming from one of the quietest characters. He's somebody who, who acts rather than speaks, but he sh he's sort of showing this other way, moving away from the, the, the high-blown rhetoric of Brooke or, or Sir James even, like sort of on, on polar opposites, and, and moving towards an actual practical response to the problems at hand. I wonder if you could, Soren, if you could tell us a little bit more about what you appreciate about Caleb Garth, because I think he's someone that you have a, an affinity for based <laughs> on things we had discussed in The Warden. And I think what I mean is he's someone who... Elliot describes as not having a mind for finances and not having a mind, uh, he doesn't have ulterior motives. He's someone who's committed to a certain type of value that he sees in the world and working on it, which is basically what you just said, right? That he's someone who has a moral system built around like doing good work on the land and how that financially benefits his family is kind of immaterial. He's, he's, they're still poor, even though he does great work. But he's like this humble, 
this is an English novel, obviously, but like the type of person we imagine in our in our wildest fancies about like the American immigrant at the turn of the century or something, right? Like someone who just came and built beautiful things and worked on the land for the sake of the land. And he's like a salt of the earth type guy. But I think you have an affinity for him because he's also, he's like working in his wheelhouse and doing something good and doing something that he sees as moral and not having a huge ambition about it or something like that. Does that make sense? I think you're, you're right there. You know, I love that connection back to the warden. In the warden, you know, we see this minister who is unwilling to compromise with what his inner his conscience is telling him about what the right thing to do is but what's maybe even better about garth is is that he is concerned with those around him as well you know Mm -hmm. the warden is very caught up in how people view him actually kind of kind of like brooke in some ways and he wants to be seen to be right but also to be right but but it doesn't really extend he's not really thinking like what's the best possible thing I can do for the people under my control? It's like, what do I owe them? What mm-hmm. can I give them? And so, so Garth almost goes beyond that and is looking at how do, I, how do I make life better for people around me by seeing things through and doing good. And there's an interesting, you know, I want to bring this up briefly because this is part of Eliot's Power of Illusion. There's a name that's mentioned twice sitting around Garth's table with his family, and that's the name of Cincinnatus, mm. who is um, the Roman who's like a farmer, and then he becomes, uh, he's given the power over Rome for a brief period of time, and then he's asked to stay on, and he renounces it, and he goes back to his farming. And, and that, there's that sort of Cincinnatus ideal there with Garth, right? He's there to sort of do his work, to do it well, to see it through, and then come back. But, but he also has a, I also like him because he has a certain like tenderness about him his reaction um when he finds out so they find out he's going to get a lot of money from becoming the the property manager for these two properties they're going to be able to send their kid they had they weren't going to be able to send one of their sons to school because of fred vinci having to pay off fred vinci's debt that he couldn't repay them for Mm -hmm. and his immediate reaction is this is great i'm going to get fred vinci to work for me so he can have an honest trade there's no sense of like, like a grudge keeping there. He would have every right to be to cut Fred Vinci out of his life, say like I'm not having any more dealings with you. But instead, his instinct is to nurture him, to bring him along, and kind of give him useful work, mm-hmm. which is something that Fred Vinci pretty desperately needs. Right, it's some sort of useful work. And so there's that tenderness in Garth. He's just a good character, and he's not a he's a he's a tricky character to pull off because he's so quiet mm-hmm. and so in so many ways so noble but he's not a boring character you know for all of that he loves his his daughter mary he wants to defend her because she says some like cutting things about fred he wants to defend her ability to say those things to be witty basically mm-hmm. um, so he's, he's got these he's, he's got these round edges to him as well <laughs> um, I, I like him a lot i think he's he's like a calm center in many ways when so many people around him are rushing around and, and tempestuous the passage you read reminds me of Arendt's distinction between labor and work, which I found poking through in, in that passage that you said, you know, to find use and long use of one's materials as mm. ultimate meaning is like characteristic of labor for Arendt, which is different from work. So like labor is what constitute the material needs for living on earth for human animals, as opposed to her work is what the homo faber does it's what we as a 
collective species who needs language, who needs to see other people and find meaning in interactions with other people do in order to make something in the world and have it last in a sort of worldly way. The passage you read of Garth is, you know, he defies worldliness for the sake Mm -hmm. of labor, which, you know, in like a highly classed English society, someone like Brooke, in that interaction, um, and Elliot is so good at just using this interaction to frame this distinction, as opposed to keeping her characters static throughout the book and always mm-hmm. bringing us back to the same interaction or same distinction. It's, it's only in this time that we get it. Brooke kind of represents the mm-hmm. other part of it, which is worldliness and the other a- aspect of the active life for Arendt, which is action or work or politics. Brooke is in the political and the worldly and here Garth is just a sort of quiet representative for like utility to simply like lessen the toil of other human beings is Mm -hmm. highly meaningful. Whereas someone like Brooke, he wants to make some lasting change in the way people think or interact. And that's meaningful for him. That's, you know, infinitely more meaningful. I like how she pokes through that ideology, at least for just that passage that you read. I love that you're taking us there, Carl, because it's really struck me reading through these two books that Middlemarch is so caught up through its characters in a sort of quest for a meaningful life. And all of these characters seem to be, to one degree or another, searching for that meaningfulness in life and maybe failing to find it. And... Maybe we can approach this a little bit through the character of Fred Vinci, because I want to talk about one of the strongest philosophical forerunners of this section of the book, which which is um, Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher, theologian, mathematician, a little bit of everything, who who I think is heavily um, there in the shadows of the description of Fred Vinci. So Fred, as I sort of mentioned before, is the good-for-nothing son of the mayor, uh, Mr. Vinci, uh, of Middlemarch, who's a businessman. He's been sent to college, so he's expected to be make a little bit more of a, of a gentleman than his father, certainly. They're, they're trying to be upwardly mobile, essentially. They have enough money to send their son to college so that he can get status. But Fred suffers from the fact that he, he just can't figure out what he wants to do with his life. He's supposed to maybe go into the church. He failed his exam to be in the church. And just left and decided not to do it anymore. And he's just been laying about his house since then and amusing himself, going through these series of amusements, gambling, billiards, hunting, all of these things. And and, and that's how he, he racks up these debts that then he has to get Caleb Garth to pay because he's too afraid to ask his father for the money. And by the end of this section, you, you we're kind of have this open question of, is Fred going to get his act together or not? He's in love with Mary Garth. Mary Garth has a great deal of affection towards him, but has no desire to marry him because he's such a layabout. And as I mentioned before, Caleb Garth thinks, okay, maybe I can get him under my wing and give him an honest trade. He's also saying he's going to go back and take this test, even though he doesn't want to go into the church. He at least wants to follow through maybe to this extent. But I see in Fred, especially in, in the opening of Waiting for Death, when we're kind of going through his attempt to get this money back by selling horses, trading horses and making money on the sales and things, a reflection of, of parts of Pascal's book, The Pensées, which is this collection of aphorisms and small meditations. It's not a coherent book. He never really finished it, but it's, it's a collection of thoughts. Pensées literally means just thoughts. And in it, 
Pascal offers one of the most penetrating insights into human boredom and the, <laughs> the desire for diversion that I think have ever been offered. It's actually, in some ways, a kind of interesting forerunner to um, one of my p favorite pieces of philosophy, which comes in my namesake, um, Soren Kierkegaard's work, Either Or, where he talks about crop rotation and the need to keep supplying people with useless things to do <laughs> so they don't fall in, basically like despair about existence. But but I'm going to read you a few things from, from the Pensees, and maybe you all can tell me what you think about how these are kind of, you see them coming through. When I have occasionally set myself to consider the different distractions of men, the pains and perils to which they expose themselves at court or in war, I've discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. A man who has enough to live on, if he knew how to stay with pleasure at home, would not leave it to go to sea or to besiege a town. Men only seek conversation and entertaining games because they cannot remain with pleasure at home. Hence it comes that play and the society of women, war, and high posts are so sought after, not that there is in fact any happiness in them, or that men imagine true bliss to consist in money won at play, or in the hare which they hunt. We would not take these as a gift. We do not seek that easy and peaceful lot which permits us to think of our unhappy condition, nor the dangers of war, nor the labor of office, but the bustle which averts these thoughts of ours and amuses us. Their error does not lie in seeking excitement, if they seek it only as a diversion. The evil is that they seek it as if the possession of the objects of their quest would make them really happy. In this respect, it is right to call their quest a vain one. The only thing which consoles us for our miseries is diversion, and yet this is the greatest of our miseries. For it is this which principally hinders us from reflecting upon ourselves, and which makes us insensibly ruin ourselves. Without this, we should be in a state of weariness, and this weariness would spur us to seek a more solid means of escaping from it. But diversion amuses us, and leads us unconsciously to death. What do you all make of the sense of diversion that is plaguing Fred Vinci, and maybe other characters here as well? That's great passage to read from the Ponce. I think it really gets at a core question of the novel, which is how do you live with yourself without deluding yourself? And I think that I want to stay with Fred, but have a parallel with him for a second too. Fred is someone who doesn't seem to have like an ambition like some of the other characters that they can center on or a regret maybe, which some people will center on, we'll see. He's just always like trying to get horse flesh or whatever they talk about, right? Like he's diverting himself. I think that Will Ladislaw is an interesting parallel and that he also is sort of a ship tossed by the by the sea, right? But he he seems to be more at ease with that. He's not driven to become a great painter when he's in Rome. He's interested in sort of dabbling and he's not driven to take up the philosophical work of his uncle or excuse me, a second cousin, who everyone always mistakes as his uncle Casabon, but he's not uninterested in the ideas behind some of that. And when you were reading those, I was reminded of another passage from this book that brings us to a familiar character, Kazavan, who has a sense of self in that he's driven by something that he's intellectually curious about, right? But how also for Eliot's narrator, that careerist pursuit or that intellectual pursuit still doesn't, it's a sort of diversion in itself that's not bringing us to what, what Pascal means by 
happiness or or a sense of self or whatever. So we're talking about his key to all mythologies, and then Eliot's narrator jumps in and says, for my part, I'm very sorry for him, meaning Kazaban. It is an uneasy lot at best to be what we call highly taught and yet not to enjoy, to be present at this great spectacle of life and never to be liberated from a small, hungry, shivering self. Never to be fully possessed by the glory we behold, never to have our consciousness rapturously transformed into the vividness of a thought, the ardor of a passion, the energy of an action, but always to be scholarly and uninspired, ambitious and timid, scrupulous and dim-sighted. Becoming a dean or even a bishop would make little difference, I fear, to Mr. Casabon's uneasiness. Doubtless some ancient Greek has observed that behind the big mask and the speaking trumpet, there must always be our poor little eyes peeping as usual, and our timorous lips more or less under anxious control. What I like about that passage is that she's focusing on Casabon as someone who has a pursuit, but it can't be satisfied in it because he's not having a real thought or he's not living in the moment and enjoying it or something like that. And then she draws us into this Greek theater metaphor and, and says, it's all of us, right? We're our poor little eyes, our timorous lips, and we're all trying to control them anxiously and striving for what Pascal is describing as comfort in this small room with yourself is in fact like a difficult task. Other characters in the book also criticize certain characters, but if we're thinking about like Fred Vinci and Will Ladislaus, people who are a little aimless, I think the difference in their aimlessness lies in like a comfort with oneself and an ability to delude oneself or not. Does that make sense? I think it, I mean, Arendt talks about this too in a similar way to um, what she brought up from Pascal Sorn in the sense that the framers of the American constitution got it wrong to phrase it as pursuit of happiness and the Brit turned American, Alan Watts, would say, you know, the pursuit is wrong. The pursuit is what makes it impossible of mm-hmm. happiness. If you're pursuing it, you're never going to get it. So don't pursue happiness. Just let it find you if it does. And the pursuing for a rent to gets to a sort of superlative natures are the natures which find meaning. And so to not be the best at something is to be nothing. And then, well, the vast majority of us are not going to make it to the stage of the top, the elite, the best ever at something or the best in a given small category for a small time. So pursuit for you is going to end up in this realm of crop rotation and distraction where you try your hand at something for a time, you realize you're not going to be great or even that good at it. So then you try something else and you just sort of wander hoping that these pursuits will end in happiness where it's better. Mm. Tolstoy talks about this in his confession and it rings true in a lot of, you know, Eastern religions as well, where the staying, the centering, or as um, Friedrich puts it, you know, being alone with yourself, a sort of metaphor without, emotion or a striving to it is the kind of opposite end of that though like Friedrich is saying we don't get that in this book we instead get Casaban whose sort of stillness and striving combine in a unfruitful you know (laughs) unfinished key to all mythologies which was itself a kind of failed striving too and in a sense what I like about that is that really Casaban's not 
better off than Fred Vinci ultimately. Right. He's doing his own sort of crop rotation in his work because he can't actually get to the point of making everything cohere, which is what he's supposed to be doing with his time. So he keeps going off and like, oh, I'm going to talk about the Egyptians now. I'm going to talk about the Sumerians and like write these little pamphlets instead. <laughs> right? That's its own sort of intellectual crop rotation right. because he can't get to the point of actually making these things come together. He can't achieve that thing. And so he is, even though he's pursuing intellectual work, whereas Fred Vinci is out riding horses, they're both diverting themselves from, from what may be the real task at hand is. And, and ultimately, that leads us back. That's a great passage you brought us to, Friedrich, with Casaubon. That's a very Pascalian sense. You're absolutely right that he can't stand to be alone with himself. And that seems to be causing a lot of his problems. At the, yeah, at the end of chapter 37, we get something that adds to what Friedrich was saying about Casaubon. Poor Mr. Casaubon was distrustful of everybody's feelings towards him, especially as a husband. To let anyone suppose that he was jealous would be to admit their suspected view of his disadvantages. To let them know that he did not find marriage particularly blissful would imply his conversion to their probably earlier disapproval. It would be as bad as letting Carp and Bracenose generally know how backward he was in organizing the matter for his key to all mythologies. All through his life, Mr. Casaubon had been trying not to admit, even to himself, the inward sores of self-doubt and jealousy. And on the most delicate of all personal subjects, the habit of proud, suspicious reticence told doubly. I think that nails home what we were trying to say. In his room by himself, he is not at one with the world. She's sort of anticipating like a Freudian psychology talk therapy thing where like the hardest thing you can do is actually cut through your own delusions and see who you really are like it's it's a hard project and we laugh at Cosmon because there there are things about him that are funny but we also she also directs us to look at him sympathetically and to say like this isn't easy to look at your whole life to live the well-examined life it's a difficult thing Friedrich you wanted to take us to one last passage and help us think through it a little bit so so why don't you take us there this is one of the more famous passages in in Middlemarch I think we would be remiss not to touch on it because it's really well known and it's just a nice metonym for what Elliot does as a writer of many many characters in a big book at the beginning of chapter 27 in Waiting for Death she writes this nice little disquisition I guess she has a lot of these as a narrator that uses the metaphor of a pier glass for how people think of themselves or how we think of people and then also how she writes about them so i'll begin reading an eminent philosopher among my friends who can dignify even your ugly furniture by lifting it into the serene light of science has shown me this pregnant little fact your pier glass or extensive surface of polished steel made to be rubbed by a housemaid will be minutely and multitudinously scratched in all directions but place now against it a lighted candle as a center of illumination and lo the scratches will seem to arrange themselves in a fine series of concentric circles round that little sun. It is demonstrable that the scratches are going everywhere impartially, and it is only your candle which produces the flattering illusion of a concentric arrangement, its light falling with an exclusive optical selection. These things are a parable. The scratches are events, and the candle is the egoism of any person now absent. That'd be a great place to end the sentence. Then she says, dash, of Miss Vincy, for example, and brings us right back into the narrative very skillfully. I wanted to get your sense of this as a, as a metonym for her writing, or even just a way of thinking about other people and our relations to them. I love this little trick she's pulling on us here. She says, these things are a parable, which is great. You don't tell people when you're writing parables, right, <laughs> usually. But 
She says the scratches are events and the candle is the egoism of any person now absent. Mm. Of Miss Vincy, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right, she kind of brings us back into the narrative. But in actuality, who's the ego that's absent? It's George Eliot, mm-hmm. right? It's her ego. It's her her sense of narration that is bringing all of these random scratches together. It's the light of her reason that yeah. makes these things hold together. It's such a lovely passage for thinking about. And, and she does such a good job of leaving it at the level of the story, which she's so good at, but then also making it this reflection on writing itself and the way she's kind of holding things together. It also strikes me that this is an interesting contrast, not to keep beating up on poor Casabon, but like to Casabon, he is looking for the key to all mythologies, this sort of natural organic thing that will unlock everything else. Eliot seems to recognize like in human life, that's not really possible human life shouldn't really hang together and it only does because human reason sort of makes it hold together a book like middlemarch shouldn't work it's 800 pages there's so many characters they're all over the place our two main characters lydgate and dorothea like barely ever meet they they barely (laughs) ever have contact they don't fall in love they're not like right they're there as very separate worlds but somehow she brings them together through the power of her own reasoning right and so that's sort of what what a novel is at its best right is this ability to bring these things into order it also makes me think i've been reading a lot of iris murdoch lately and her her criticism on writing novels she loves the victorians um she goes back to them constantly but one thing that she says is she's always struggling with the what she calls like the mythic elements and then the natural elements and she says she thinks she goes maybe toward, too much towards the mythic in some of her books, including A Severed Head, which we, we talked about last season. But what she's getting at is the idea that as a writer, you want to be imposing order and coherence on your world, but you can't do it too much because then it doesn't work. You have to let these people be jagged and, and sort of ragged as characters and have their own life as characters. And that's, for her, the kind of constant struggle that motivates her writing is to get that balance right between letting them be real and be be actual people in that sense of being all over the place, but then also holding them together through a plot, through a, through a coherence. And this is, I think, this image of this pier glass is really getting at that, right? These are random scratches. They don't go, they don't fall in the way that we want them to lie, but we can still make some sort of sense out of them through the work of reason, through the work of viewing them yeah, I mean, well, it's, I mean, to talk about reason, there's, you know, this idea that, like, in philosophy, a principle of sufficient reason, an act must have a sufficient reason for it to have happened, a cause. And she seems to be siding slightly against that being necessary. And it's like a Humean empiricist meets pragmatist kind of approach where the illusion is your ego ordering things. Um, like the American pragmatist Richard Rorty, you know, there is no final vocabulary which is what a key to all mythologies would be Mm -hmm. the ultimate perfect system of ontology or something to help us understand everything you know and like the victorians the brits they wanted this you know like bertrand russell wanted the logicist principia mathematica the new you know key to all logics right and it was proven to be not just a flawed endeavor but an impossible task by the 20th century mathematician Kurt Gödel. Eliot's ahead of the curve in that sense where she understands that 
you walking through this novel and you walking through life aren't going to have a principle of sufficient reason at any one point for what tomorrow must be in order for you to live the perfect and best life. A lot of times you're just going to have a heaping bag of things, you know, out of which you grab to find something and proceed. And that's kind of the best you can do. So my metaphor was not as good as this pier glass, but that's kind of the, that's what she gives us there. And in the middle of the book, it's, it's a really apt place to put a metaphor like that. In the novel that's about keys and theories of everything in a time when people are polymathic and they're theorizing how can we answer every question it's a it's a great sort of future looking relativistic way of seeing your reality in a way that looks to murdoch who we've talked about a lot as someone who says we're all confused about the nature of our reality and we're putting fantasies out there to try and explain it elliot Mm -hmm. sort of has this brilliant intuition that the metaphor of art that's been brought up for so long of a mirror to held to the world that for Joyce is the mirror with the razor blade across it, right? Is indeed like burnished and reflects many different things. And so holding mm-hmm. a mirror to that world is not so simple as a one-to-one reflection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's interestingly within and without uh, modernism and the yeah. sort of traditional sense of, yeah, Joyce's razor and the mirror and the cracked mirror. And mm-hmm. instead it's the multiple random scratches on a glass. That's a good place, I think, to stop. Uh, We'll come back next episode. We're going to talk about books five and six. We'll get deeper and deeper into um, the entanglements of love and how those are working out for our various characters. We'll get to that next time. But until then, uh, we'll let Cat Keyboard play us out. soul to steal. Saw Blaise Pascal hunch over a scroll and he said, let's make a deal. I've heard you play the fiddle. Well, I'm a fiddle player too. So I bet your soul against a fiddle of gold because I think I'm better than you. Said Pascal, Monsieur Le Diable, I can sing and I can dance. And I'm better than you. Yes, I know it's true. 99% plus chance. That fiddle of gold, well, if it was sold, it could feed me pretty well. But there's infinite disutility out of any chance of hell. So my calculations tell me that my answer must be non. Now take your poison deals, say au revoir, and get thee gone. Pascal said to gain his exit, make your losses Y. Estimate your chance of winning and cross-multiply. On one side, piece of win times value, fiddle made of gold. And on the other, piece of loss times soul.